Turning your Bibles to Psalm 12. In light of all that's going on in our nation, I think it's appropriate to take a quick diversion from our series in Luke and look at a psalm of lament. Uh, sometimes in psalms there are personal laments. This is a corporate or national lament, Psalm 12. I can't breathe. These were the last words of George Floyd as his neck was pinned under the knee of a supposed officer of the law. Three words of suffocated suffering. Three words of unimaginable injustice. Three words that have set our nation ablaze. Three words that have broken our hearts. Many of our eyes have been glued to the screen and we have seen not only the videos of two murders in the last several weeks, but literally thousands of people taking the streets, the aftermath of violence and lootings and shootings and burnings. And we're grieved, we're angered, we're confused, we're frustrated. How are Christians to respond to a situation like this. If you watch too much Fox or CNN, as I fear many Christians do, you're tempted to immediately politicize the whole situation. If only we had a Democratic president, if only Minnesota had a Republican governor, if only people would see the world the way I see it. If we primarily wear the lens of Fox and CNN, we may very well fail to see the world as God intends to see it. So Scripture gives us another lens. Psalm 12 is a communal lament, a national lament. And as David looks out his window into the streets and he sees the wickedness, David looks at the world, though not through the lens of the world, but through the lens of the Word. And it made all the difference in the world for him. And what made all the difference in the world for David can make all the difference in the world for us as well. Hear now from God's Word, Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies in his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off the flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say with their tongue, we will prevail. Our lips with us, who is master over us? Because the poor plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would teach us to mourn. Instill in us by your Spirit a godly sorrow, a true lament, a mourning that leaves us to the foot of the cross, 
in which we see anew and afresh the mourning of our Savior and the victory of our Savior. Lord Jesus, we ask this day that you would grant us grace to see more clearly and through the rubble and the ruin to exult in our great God and King. Bless and strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We've recently seen the video of two men running down and gunning down Ahmad Arbery, a young 25-year-old African-American man who was running in a small town, South Georgia. We witnessed the suffocation of George Floyd, a man from Big City, Minnesota, and we're hurting. Many of us are truly hurting. But I can assure you we are not hurting as much as our African-American brothers and sisters. You see, there's history in their hurt. Long forgotten history to many whites, but it's a history that's regularly relived by every African-American every time they hear reports of racial injustice. It's a history that creates fresh fear, that opens old wounds every time a news report about such incidents. Jamar Tisby is a believer in Christ. He's a young African-American man who graduated with a Master's in Divinity from Jackson, Mississippi, RTS, there in Jackson. And Jamar has written an excellent book and it produced a documentary entitled The Color of Comfort, subtitled The Truth About American Church's Complicity in Racism. By the way, I just learned that the 12-episode series is free on Amazon Prime, and I'd highly encourage you to watch it. it. It's not an easy watch, but I think it will be very helpful if you want to grow in understanding and loving your African-American neighbors. Chapter 1 of the book opens with some of the history of the hurt. Four young girls busily prepared for their big day. It was September 15, 1963, the day of the Youth Day Sunday service at 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And the girls, along with the other young people of the congregation, would spend the next few hours singing songs, reciting poems, praying, giving encouraging messages in front of hundreds of beaming parents. The girls, Addie Mae Collins, 14, Denise McNair, 11, Carol Robertson, 14, Cynthia Wesley, 14, had just finished Sunday school and were in the church basement making final adjustments to their white dresses when the bomb exploded. The blast which killed all four girls and injured at least 20 others left a hole in the floor five feet wide and two feet deep. It decapitated Cynthia. Her parents could only identify her body by her feet and by the ring she was wearing. A newspaper report at the time indicated that all the church's stained glass windows had been destroyed except one, a window depicting Christ leading a group of little children. And the face of Christ was blown out. This is history that hurts, and it hurts deeply. That's why this morning after the release of the video of Ahmad's death, when Mitch and Chandra Mason's 
teenage boy got up to go for his morning run. Chandra, out of fear of what could happen to her son simply because of the color of his skin, laced up her shoes and ran with him. It's why Howard and Kelly Brown don't feel comfortable in letting their teenage boys walk by themselves throughout the Charlotte Mall, even when Howard and Kelly are at the mall. It's why last week when Becky and I worshipped with Freeway Church on the lawn at Patrick Square, one of our football coaches who was leading the prayer of intercession broke down with a heavy heart during his prayer. It's why afterwards as I spoke to him and to his wife and shared my sorrow over the loss and the death of George Floyd that tears began to run down her cheeks behind her sunglasses. And it's this history of hurt that I wonder how I will be able to tell my granddaughter about the world in which she is to be raised. The history hurts and current events open those old wounds. And so how do we respond? The, the setting's different, the sin is not the same, but we can learn much from King David's lament as to how we are to lament, how we are to mourn as Christians when we look out into the streets and we see a broken, broken world. Psalm 12 reminds us that in the midst of our mourning, God's people are called to cry out to Him for deliverance from the wickedness of this world. Save, O Lord. This is the urgent cry of a man who looks out into the street and he hears nothing but lies and deceit. He sees nothing but godlessness and wickedness, injustice and oppression. And in fact, it feels like only the wicked are present, that the righteous are gone, he writes, for the godly one's gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Verse 8, on every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. He feels alone, abandoned by the righteous, and he feels surrounded by the wicked, and it sends the psalmist into deep lament. And so he cries, save, O Lord. The Hebrew word save is yesha, also translated deliver, set free. The, the psalmist sees the wickedness in the world. He mourns over it and he longs to be set free from it. It's everywhere though. He, he can't escape it. Recently you've seen this on the television. The streets are full filled with hate speech and violence. But the Christian mourns, not only because of the wickedness in the world. The Christian mourns not only because of the wickedness out there, but the true believer mourns because of the wickedness in here, in our hearts, in my heart. In verse 2 we read that they speak with a, a double heart. Literally the Hebrew reads, with heart and heart they speak. Certainly a clear reminder of where the problem truly lies. It lies in the human heart. It's not the skin. It's sin you've heard. And that is true. Sin in my heart. Sin in the hearts of humanity. 
We're reminded of this from the very outset after the fall in Genesis chapter 6. As the Lord looked upon humanity, this was his assessment. The Lord saw the wickedness of man and how great it was in the earth. And that every intention of his thoughts was only evil all the time. The intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what Jesus later confirmed as he spoke to the unbelieving crowd. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jamar Tisby continues in chapter 1 of his book, after the bombing and murder of those little girls. Three days later, an integrated crowd of thousands of mourners gathered at 6th Avenue Baptist Church for the funeral of three of the girls. So many attended that the mass of people spilled out the sanctuary and into the streets. Before the funeral on the day after the bombing, a young white lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. delivered a lunchtime speech at Birmingham's all-white Young Men's Business Club. Of course, he had heard about the tragedy in his city and his lifelong southern jotted down some words about racism and complicity that would prove to be a turning point in his life. Reflecting on the events, he said, Who did it? Who threw the bomb? Was it a Negro or white? The answer should be, we all did it. Every last one of us condemned for that crime and bombing before it and decade earlier as well. We all did it. Morgan recognized that no matter who had physically planted dynamite, all the city's white residents were complicit in allowing an environment of hatred and racism to persist. The acts that reinforced racism happened in countless of common ways. Morgan explained, The who is every little individual who talks about the N-word and spreads the seed of his hate to his neighbors and his son. The jokester, the crude oaf, whose racial jokes rocked a party with laughter. That's who killed those little girls. Out of the heart flow words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the sin of our hearts not only manifests itself in, in pride and prejudice, it goes on and it manifests itself in injustice over the pride and prejudice. When we see the murders and when we see the aftermath of the burnings and lootings and shootings and violence, there should be righteous anger. We should be filled with it. But there can also be ungodly anger. And we've seen plenty of that as well. Ungodly anger that resides in my heart when I want to retaliate in kind. And my problem is I, I don't always know when my heart crosses the line from one to the other. The other night I saw a video clip of a young white man who looked like the stereotypical Antifa member standing in front of a car at night and he was blocking that car and as the car patiently inched forward, obviously wanting to get by, he stood his ground he was not about to move for whatever his cause might have been. But then out of nowhere, from off to the side, 
one of those orange traffic cones came flying into the camera light and nailed the kid in the head and he fell down and the the car drove off. I have to admit, I, I watched it more than twice. There's something satisfying about seeing someone deserve what you think they've deserved, but it's not always righteous anger. I have to guard my heart to determine whether my anger is righteous or when it's not. Jesus said in those situations, what we must do is we must mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn and who cry out to God for deliverance from the wickedness without and the wickedness within. We also see in this lesson of lament that in the midst of our mourning, God's Word provides the clarity and promises deliverance in the midst of the wickedness of this world. While we saw in verses 1 through 4, man's speech is vile and untrustworthy. It's filled with lies and deceit. While no one knows who or what to believe anymore because everyone's putting their own spin on things. From the media to the newspapers, wherever it might be, because everyone's creating their own reality and truth doesn't matter. We need to realize there is a voice of sovereign grace. Sounds from the sacred Word, O sinner despairing, come and trust upon the Lord. Did you see the contrast in Psalm 12? Did you hear it? The streets may be filled with deceitful words of man, but the words of the Lord are pure, verse 6. Absolutely, utterly pure and trustworthy. It is God's Word that will give us clarity of thought. It will teach us how to mourn and give us clarity of sight. Again, let me urge us to take off our highly politicized, emotively charged glasses of Fox and CNN and look at the world through the lens of Holy Scripture. I mentioned several months back a quote from C.S. Lewis when he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. And so what do the streets look like through God's eyes? What do the noise and the sound of the streets sound like through God's Word? Yes, we see and hear, as the Scriptures describe, that we live in a twisted, broken fallen world filled with pain and heartache and disappointment and murder and injustice. But we also see through the lens of Scripture, through the smoldering rubble, that there is a Redeemer. There is one who still rules and reigns and is at work in our midst. A, A Redeemer who hears and who promises He promises care for the poor and for the unjustly treated, for the misused and abused, for those marginalized by systemic injustice in society. Verse 5 tells us that God sees the poor who are plundered and hears the groan of the needy. He promises in verse 8 to watch over and guard His people from this wicked generation. You see, by grace, 
Even though the psalmist felt all alone, God nevertheless is intent on hewing out of humanity by his grace a people of his own. And he will watch over and care for and preserve his church. And so as you look through the lens of Scripture, do not wring your hands watching the news. Rather, cling your heart to the promises of God. And and through even tear-filled eyes, we will begin to see more clearly, from God's perspective, the world in which we live and how we are to respond to that world. And finally, in this lesson of lament from Psalm 12, we see that in the midst of mourning, our mourning, our real deep mourning, that God will grant great hope of deliverance from the wickedness in this world. Verse 5 is the focal point of this psalm. As David is in the midst of his mourning, as he is in the midst of his lament, before he even finishes his prayer, it's as if God interrupts with an answer. I will now arise, says the Lord, now expresses a decisive turning point. In the midst of the ruin and rubble of this fallen world, God will hear the mourning of his people and he will act, he will respond, he will most certainly come. And the, That confidence and that hope is what gave the psalmist a holy humble audacity to tell God something. In verse 1, when he says, Save, O Lord, he uses the imperative. He's commanding God humbly. He's demanding of God with this holy humility to save. How can he have the audacity to do this? Because he knows as the redeemed, he has the ear and he has the heart of the Redeemer. Because he knows something of the promises of God. Because he knows something of the nature and character of God. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Will he not promise and will he not fulfill? And so on the basis of God's character, on the grounds of his promise, the psalmist says, Save, O Lord. I've mentioned to you before the Puritans used to refer to the promises of God and the nature of God. And because of the two, they would say, Sue him. Take his promises, take your mournful hearts, and bring it before his throne and sue him. It's why... John Newton penned the wonderful words of the hymn. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. And indeed, he does. And not only does Jesus love to answer prayer, but he is the answer to that prayer. To all the moaning and groaning and crying and sighing, Jesus really is the answer. I mentioned earlier the Hebrew word for save is Yeshua, from which we get the word Joshua, 
the Lord saves. Yeshua. Transliterated Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of which the prophetic heart of the psalmist was longing. And, and so when is it that God will arise in the midst of our mourning? When did He arise and save us and deliver us and set us free from sin and death and hell? It was when He sent His Son, Yeshua, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sins. And so it's to Him, ultimately, that we cry out with mourning hearts because He is the man of sorrow who's not foreign to grief. It's to Him that we cry out for mercy and grace and forgiveness and the grace to forgive when offended because it's found there at the cross. It is to Him that we cry out for restoration and reconciliation and protection and peace. For He, as Paul penned, Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two. One new man in the place of Jew and Gentile. One new man in the place of of people from every language, tribe, and nation, and ethnicity. Through the work of Christ, He will make all things new. And so making peace that He might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby, I love this phrase, thereby killing hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you, who are far off, and peace to you who are near. Christ accomplished this on the cross. Redemption accomplished, redemption applied. And yet 2,000 years later, not all is safe in the streets. Not all hostility has ceased. But one day it will. One day, as God promised in verse 5, God will rise again in response to the mourning of His people and Christ will return in power and glory and splendor, making all wrongs right, making all things new. No more injustice, no more pride and prejudice, no more oppression of the poor. It will be a place when He returns the new heavens and the new earth, it will be a place of which Dr. King dreamed when he said, I have a dream where little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls and walk together as sisters and brothers. It will be a place like that, yet infinitely better it will be a place in which the lion and the lamb lay down together. A place where paradise lost will be paradise regained. A place where there will be no more mourning or sighing or crying or tears. And that place, that place is for all who mourn over their sin. Who mourn over the brokenness of this world. And in faith who cry out to the Lord Jesus, O oh, Christ, save.
that place is ours. God promises again, verse 5, on that day our God will once again arise and I will place him in the safety for which he longs. On that day our God will once again arise in justice. And verse 3 and 4 tell us he will cut off the wicked. He will cut off those who've oppressed reveled in injustice and he will vindicate the righteous the weak the marginalized who are trusting in him and he will restore verses 5 and 6 all things to their rightful place this is the Christian's hope this is the hope of glory to which those who look in faith to Christ await Jesus promised Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But in the meantime, there's much mourning. There remains much brokenness in the world. There remains much for us to do. Let me encourage you as we reflect on mourning to do several things. First, begin our true mourning and crying out to God by pleading with Him for deliverance. The deliverance not just from the sin out there, but from the sin in here. Plead with Him for healing of our land, for reconciliation of the races. Our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America's Committee on Discipleship Ministry and Missions in North America have collaborated on a 30-day prayer guide entitled a time to listen, a time to mourn, and a time to hope. You can find it on the denomination's website, and it's available through our church as well. We'll be hearing from some of our African-American brothers who are pastors in our denomination of, of what this has been like for them and how can we learn from them. We'll be learning from Scripture, and we'll be praying together these th next 30 days. Let me encourage you, I strongly encourage you, to avail yourself to that resource, you, your, your family, with your children, with your friends. And let's storm the gates of heaven with mournful hearts pleading to God to heal us. Second, let me encourage you to read Jamar's book, The Color of Compromise, or, or watch it for free on Amazon Prime. Third, let me encourage you to remind your African-American friends that you love them. I assure you, they're hurting. Let them know that you love them. And finally, as we come before our great God, asking Him, how do we carry this forward? Remember the admonition in Micah? He has shown you a man what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Let us also hear the words of Amos, but let justice roll down like a river, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And may the gospel of grace flow into our streets, through the church, through the people of grace. Let's pray together. Father, we 
cry out to you with heavy hearts. And we cry out, oh Lord, save. Deliver us, set us free from the penalty and one day even the presence of sin and death and hell. But Father, would you grant us a measure of that grace even now? Strengthen us. Grant us the hope of glory even as we look through the eyes of tears at the ruin and rubble of many places in our culture. Lord Jesus, we plead that you would once again arise and that you would make all wrongs right. You would renew all things. As we look forward to that day of the new heavens and the new earth, we long for that day. So come and set us free. Strengthen us by your grace and for your glory. May we shine like stars in a dark and depraved generation to the glory and honor and praise of Christ, the Redeemer and King. Amen.